Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Jason Rudenbeck, and I'm here with Paul Axon from Forging Plowshares, and we're here to talk about um, the new Plowshares Bible Institute uh, course that uh, Paul Axon has been uh, developing. Um, called Romans, Salvation Through the Body of Christ. And I remember, Paul, when we sat down and started working out what all the different courses were going to be and started working on what those course, uh, what those program level outcomes were going to be. And um, when we talked about this course, um, that was the title you chose. And I was wondering, before we get into the approach, maybe if you could uh, talk a little bit about why that title, Salvation Through the Body of Christ, uh, and as a, uh, a title for the Romans course. Well, the uh, usual contractual way of understanding salvation is to imagine that salvation is primarily uh, exchange between the Father and the Son. And so Romans gets read as, as a sort of either penal substitution or some sort of uh, contractual theology, as if salvation is floating uh, apart from the other issues, and so you get the division between uh, sanctification and salvation. And I just think that's a bogus understanding. The way in which Paul is depicting salvation is a practical entry into uh, the body of Christ, that is, that, and I don't think Romans is unique in this, that once you see this, that the that the salvation that he says to work out uh, is one that is a practical salvation from real-world categories that addresses real-world problems and is not then either a theoretical, legalistic, or legal. It's not really about the law, but it is about our, our hum, the human condition, and the church then addresses that being in the body of Christ. I don't want to just start running off here, but uh, addresses all of the categories then. Once you, once you get out of contractual theology or penal substitution or imputed righteousness, once, you're, once you free yourself of that, uh, that kind of viral, you know, that just infects everything. Uh, and I just don't think that's a correct reading of Romans. So breaking it down a little bit, um, basically uh, Romans is presenting a view of salvation that is uh, that really is a this worldly um, how we li- how it how the gospel changes how we live our lives and um, how it makes things better. Um, maybe another way of saying it would be how it exemplifies Jesus' statement about that the kingdom is is now, that the kingdom is on this earth as it is in heaven. Does that make sense? Yeah, that in other words, the uh, salvation is often pictured as futuristic, dealing with an exchange between the Father and the Son. It's often depicted as a, a kind of out-of-body thing, that it's elsewhere. In, in this, I think many people have, uh, since the kind of the new perspective on Paul, that, that there has been a development in this area that people understand that it's not when we say righteousness or being made right or justification. We've tended to think of that in Greek terms, but 
uh, probably in Hebrew, of Hebrew understanding, it's familial language. And so things are being made right because they ain't right. Mm-hmm. And the way that they're not right, we can all understand that there's evil, there's suffering, there's death. And what has the, the, the grand tragedy in all this is that by misunderstanding the nature of uh, what it is that God is doing in making things right, We've missed the sense in which he's addressing a real world, real world problems. You know, um, I've spent uh, because of you. I, I have you to blame. Um, I've spent a great deal of time trying to work through um, an understanding of what it means to be saved and to be a Christian, be a follower of Jesus, apart from this notion that, um, well, you know, I, I I said a prayer, I got baptized, and now. Now I'm in this group of people that are uh, going to heaven someday, and that that doesn't really have anything to do with the the life we live here. Um, it, you know, I, I maybe I try to go to church and maybe I try to cuss a little bit less, and not much less, but I cuss a little bit less. Um, but it doesn't really have any bearing. And I, when I started to change that, you know, from a personal perspective, I started to understand it differently. It had a huge impact on every part of our lives. It changes the way you uh, do your business uh, day to day, um, the way you work, the way you um, the way you respond to the people that um, you sometimes don't want to respond very well to. Um, it, it changes your relationship to other other uh, people in the church and what you think the church ought to be doing, how it ought to live uh, counterculturally. All of those things, I think, are, and from seeing a lot of what you've written and seeing a lot of the videos so far, so many of those things are dealt with in Romans. What I want to get at is that a lot of times when I'm talking to people about um, who, who maybe are still kind of stuck on penal substitution, they have a hard time moving away from that and seem to not really think that it matters. That Once you change so so what if I change my atonement theology? Isn't the point that just that we go to heaven someday and that we get people in that going to heaven club? But what I, what I want to reiterate is something you said just a minute ago. No, uh, the, these problems are much more fundamental than just the, the, the sort of end result, what happens after we die. But it, it really is about changing the way life is lived now. And, and fixing the problems that we run into now. How does your course, uh, the way you're looking at Romans, how do you, how does it then apply to issues like uh, social justice and the suffering that we endure um, as Christians and uh, just as people in a world full of um, indifference to suffering and justice? The, my reading of Romans is very much a part of our development, I think, of the whole idea of plow, forging plowshares, and that is that nonviolence or peaceableness or, uh, is, is at the heart of the book of Romans. But what you have to stretch out is your understanding of the nature of violence and the connection between violence and sin. That is, violence, as Paul depicts it in Romans 7 is not just something you do to other people, that this agonistic struggle is a violent struggle that is, in in a sense, taking up death into the self. And that one, uh, you know, what one does, and Paul depicts this in 
Romans chapter 3, he depicts then the anatomy of violence as one in which you enter into a lie, and in and through this lie then, uh, literal violence, he says, you know, the end of that section there, he's quoting a series of scriptures, is you go out and kill people, that, that you shed blood. But I think in Romans 7, what he's doing is giving us an anatomy of violence within the, that it arises, obviously, within us. And so that there is this antagonism in each of us individually, in our identity. As I'm saying all this, I don't mean to in some way uh, make this individualistic. I think that that's there, and it's certainly there in Romans 7. So, But that's a good place to begin to understand that you're addressing your own violence, and then you see this violence working itself out. Uh, in the principalities and powers of this world. And as Christians, we're grounded in a peaceableness. I mean, that's the picture in Romans chapter 8. That that sort of, uh, you know, when Paul uses the language of condemnation, unfortunately, I think that what people imagine is some future category like hell. No, he's just said what's damnable in the individual, and he's described up to that point several instances of damnable human uh, behavior and existence. And, of course, that is the the antagonism that you get that gives rise to murder and uh, a kind of uh, violent sort of living. My reading of Romans, in that it does not take up the whole notion of contractual language, and then it also then connects back to what Jesus is doing. You know, this is the great danger in reading Romans, and that I think it's happened with Constantinianism, mm-hmm. that uh, you read Romans or, or the uh, uh, epistles of Paul now as if they are the center of the New Testament. Because of the nature of Constantinianism, we have to participate in the violence of this world And in some way, Paul is made to accommodate that, and the best way to do that is to get rid of the Gospels as central to our theology. Now, that might sound silly to people and say, oh, we don't do that. But actually, many of us have done that in, you know, are we really supposed to do what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain? I think there is a reading of Paul that would answer no, and the uh, that is the contractual reading. How do you know? How do you fit Jesus back in? And in my understanding of Romans, and uh, that well, it, you've got to read Paul not as center, but Jesus as center, the Gospels as center, and then you get then you're uh, then you're opening yourself back up to an ethic that is grounded in the person of Christ. Right. I think, uh, you know, uh, growing up and even um, in, uh, in my education experience, um, Romans was basically there to tell us, uh, you just boil everything down to Romans 3.23. Look, everybody has sinned. Uh, nobody can get to heaven on their own. So, um, and the law couldn't do it. Um, so, uh, so that ends up fitting in really well with a sort of hyper-reformed uh, understanding that you can't earn your way to heaven, which is the only way to really understand salvation. So therefore, um, you kind of fall back on the Gospels and do penal substitution, and then you jump right to Romans 13, 
where uh, you uh, you read that as if you're um, sort of uh, affirming the role of the state. That's really the end. I wanted to sort of dig into that a little bit because I know your your um, dissertation focuses a lot on Romans six through eight. But one of the things I'm really interested in is uh, Stan Hauerwas one time said uh, folks love to go to Romans thirteen and quote Romans thirteen. Seldom reading Romans 12. I'm wondering, um, as you move forward from your work uh, in the earlier chapters in Romans, how you deal a little bit with that. That might be something folks that watch this might be really interested in to know. What are you going to do with Romans 13? Well, first of all, I'm not going to isolate it from Romans 12 or the rest of the book of Romans. And, 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 of course, that's the way you get traditional readings that were to be blindly obedient to the government and that we get the notion of two kingdoms, and in one kingdom we can, you know, go to war and kill people, and in the other kingdom we... we, Well, that has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about. Uh, Remember that Paul is about to be beheaded by these people, and so he is not saying that God has ordained the Roman government. Uh, He does say that God, I I think, orders... Uh, the government. He orders this world system, and I, by that, it's not like, oh, he chose Caesar Augustus, or he chose Nero, because Nero is God's man in the palace, any more than he chose Hitler, uh, Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, George Bush, Donald Trump. God's not in that sort of business, and so right. we've got this whole misreading of Romans 13, and of course, re- people read it selectively, and imagine, well, this particular guy, you know, and then they'll, and of course, if it's somebody in office, that's just a misunderstanding. Put it back into chapter 12, he says, don't be conformed, uh, but be, you know, transformed. And then he's telling us, okay, how do we negotiate the principalities and powers? Uh, He's not saying that we should lead some sort of revolution and hand out machine guns and take over. And, and so in that sense, we are to be subordinate. But subordinates is not the same thing as obedience. And that's obvious because Jesus got killed by these people. If he had been obedient, they wouldn't have crucified him. Right. If he had done everything they had said, and of course that's true of the apostle, that's true of all the apostles, they're all going to die at the hands of this state. You don't have to think very long. Paul may not be saying, be blindly obedient to the powers that be, because he's not. But he's subordinate in the sense that he's going to be beheaded. Right. And that's the price you're going to pay for this thing. So there is the, the undermining of the principalities and powers. You know, think of a little book like Philemon. But Paul doesn't say, oh, you know, Onesimus, uh, you, you just go home because I'm going to tell Philemon slavery's ended. No, he tells him, go back, be subordinate. But at the same time, he's saying to Philemon, who is a Christian, hey, this guy's your brother, and he's my son. It is a kind of revolution, but not a violent re- revolution. It's a, it's a radical revolution of, of subordinates that is going to overturn slavery. It's going to, in some way, set up a kingdom that can negotiate living in this world so that we're not always involved in armed struggle. And Paul does say that the government has its purpose, that it is to control evil. And, of course, when he's saying that, he's saying that he's using the language of the sword, but actually he uses the language of the short sword. 
it's a, it's pleasing. And that's the, you know, this is John Howard Yoder's, but many people's reading of this, that the government is there. And, you know, think of even the worst government. You know, think of, I don't know that Saddam Hussein or the worst, but we decided he was a, such a bad guy, we're going to take him out. As bad as he was, at least as long as he was in control, and, of course, it, he, he was transgressive in many ways, but there was organization, there was police, there was, you know, the people could, you know, there was water, there was, they had public services. That infrastructure has all fallen apart. That, that's really what Paul's saying there in Romans 13, that, the, yeah, the state's there and that, that God has in some way ordered the world according this way. But think back even to Israel, that when Israel demands a king, he said, well, I'll give you a king, but understand, and, and he says this at various places, I don't know who this king is. I, I didn't raise up this king. And, and, of course, God's desire for Israel was that they not fall under a kind of monarchy or that understanding. So you've got to put Romans 13 in the context of the rest of the book and certainly the immediate surrounding of chapter 12. Right. The church is really uh, the fulfillment, intended to be the fulfillment of the kingdom, um, and this, I think, uh, also the fulfillment that we're grafted into the nation of Israel um, in the sense that the nation of Israel was always supposed to be this called out people. The early story of the Exodus and into the, um, the conquest of Israel, the earliest um, understanding we have is that God had said, I don't want you to have a king. I, I want you to be a different people but it was always Israel that was saying, no, we want to be like these other nations. They were impressed with those kind of power structures. And so, yes, within that, within a world that doesn't work the way it is that God wants it to, you have these structures to maintain some sort of order. But we as a people, um, as the people of God, as a kingdom, are intended to be delivering the true way of, of life that isn't a power structure that maintains power through violence. You know, if we're going to talk about financial or economic justice, the goal isn't to make, make sure we take money from these folks and give it to these folks, although in the world's structure that may be the only way to find any kind of justice, but in the kingdom, it's a group of people who each of everybody owns nothing and we all own everything together. It's not socialism or communism. It certainly isn't capitalism. It's the kingdom. Um, and yet um, outside of the kingdom, the, the world works these ways and it has these structures to maintain some kind of uh, structure, but in the kingdom, it's God's will. Um, it's God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And ideally, we're working that out and finding a way to witness to uh, what I always say, witness to what God's intention is for the resurrection. Hopefully that uh, meshes a little bit with what you're, what you're saying about Romans 13. Yeah, that, you know, the, the Jesus is true king. And that's the reading. Once you get this, that this that it is the the church is the kingdom that is a socio political cultural order uh, that is not simply heavenly, but it's this world, and in the every way that counts, Jesus is is reigning. And 
that reign, uh, he, he is establishing rule over evil through the, you know, and death through the resurrection. And so we are to live then as subjects of the king. And that means that if Jesus is Lord, I mean, this has in Japan, when you say Jesus is Lord, well, the Tokugawas said, well, no, I'm Lord. I'm going to kill you if you say that. Hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, similar thing in Rome. But we don't back down from that and say, okay, well, no. That, that, and so that means that the, we, while we recognize the principalities and powers, we recognize that there are these uh, institutions in place, uh, they are not determinative of who we are. Or, you know, it, this is the strange thing that happens in Constantinianism. And, I, you know, even to say, I think it's almost been aggravated it's even worse, I think, in some senses with the Reformation in the modern sense that, you know, the whole language, maybe in the United States, this thing culminates in the worst way possible, that this country is often pictured as the city set upon the hill, the true kingdom. And so there is this complete fusion so that people can think of the freedom that America gives you and the freedom that Christ gives you as the same thing or in some way. And so people can go out and die imagining they're dying for Christ when they're dying for political, you know, powers or nation states. Even people who recognize what I just said, I think that theology has not taken a departure from Constantinianism, that people still imagine, oh, well, there's two orders of knowing, you know, there's two orders of understanding. And so in my work, what I, I said is, well, no, actually what is being depicted is that we have been uh, subjected to a lie, and we all participate this, in this, and the way in which we participate in the lie, it's not that we're born and, uh, you know, that we genetically have it, but the way this thing's foisted upon us is precisely through the sociocultural, you know, orders in which we're born, and so the very nature of sin is such that we would, just as the Jews depended upon being Jewish, that's their failure, mm -hmm. to be. they imagined that's what saved them. That's not just a Jewish problem, that's the human problem. We're all going to imagine that through our you know, family, nation, state, whatever. And, of course, that's the grand lie that's been foisted upon us. But that lie then is not just, it, it certainly has to do with our identity, it has to do with the principalities and powers, but the very nature of our knowing. Our knowing is inadequate. We cannot in some way imagine that we have a parallel act, access to God through a human understanding, and then we can switch to revelation. You know, mm -hmm. and and a, a little of this has been recognized. You know, people have come along and said, "Well, yeah, natural theology has its limits." Or, no, what I'm saying is that we have one foundation, and what that means, it applies to our knowing too. That epistemologically, we're completely dependent upon the revelation that we have in Christ. Now, that's not to say that we can't extrapolate that and re, you know, understand things. Nor is it to say that, oh, we don't have factual knowledge outside of being Christian. I'm not saying that. But the truth in the sense in which we mean it in the New Testament and the way in which things are going to cohere, we only have that in and through Christ breaking into history. 
Right. Otherwise, we're deceived. We're subject to sin. Uh, that's part of what you know my own work in Romans seven, but I think it is Romans six, seven, and eight. I take that as central to the book. That once you once you understand that there is the the uh, depiction of the thing that we're saved from and the way in which we're saved, that has nothing to do with you know, uh, contractual theology or penal substitution or divine satisfaction or it's very straightforward and actually once you see this it's a fairly simple reading mm-hmm. you know that's the thing that's happened in roman studies you have these various early liberal schweitzer and all they're rereading romans as kind of a spiritual and that, and they're partly correct and then you have the reformation reading it and going back say no it's all about you know faith over and against uh, works or faith against grace and pity you know in a in a lutheran sense but of course it's not really just luther it's it's more serious right. uh and then you have the new perspective that they've understood that luther is inadequate and so i think that that we have these little bits and pieces that have been put into place but what i'm doing and I, it's not I, I think that there are others that uh, Douglas Campbell, strength, in, in an interesting way, has been parallel. Uh, I think I'm older than he is, but I, uh, I think we were doing our. I, unfortunately, I'm slow-minded and slow. You know, I did my work at the wrong end of my life. But interestingly, uh, he he uh, is is arrived at from a New Testament scholarship. I've done my work primarily in theology mm-hmm. and from a theological understanding, but it's interesting that I think there are people, many people, or some people, uh, maybe it's actually not many at all. Think the theologians studying the Bible? Or yeah. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that, that people are recognizing that the inadequacies and the impossibility of making sense of this book. You can make sense. In other words, you can take these misreadings or par- partial readings you can read parsh portions of Romans, mm-hmm. and make sense, but then you can't make sense of the whole book. Uh, you can't put it together, yeah. and so that's the that's the plan, or that's the 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 thing that I think. If first of all, by getting what the nature of the human predicament is, what the solution, then that gives you a different reading. I think of the whole thing. So, really, what you're saying is, it's not salvation through divine satisfaction or salvation through participation in in Roman culture or salvation through being an Israelite or, for that matter, salvation through uh, being an American or a specific party in American uh, culture, but it's salvation through being a part of the body of Christ and a part of the kingdom of God. And that means that it's... uh... It's practical. You can, you know, how do you do this? Well, uh, that's the that's the whole point of, of uh, living in harmony and unity and uh, treating other people in in a loving fashion. Uh, that Paul, you know, he in a sense, I've been doing Corinthians, and I think it's there in in Romans too that the heart of Paul's gospel is always love. That that's there in Romans, that the way that you treat the weak, you know, there's parallel passages in Romans that are there in Corinthians about eating meat, and worrying about the weak, and that he wants people to live in harmony with one another. Uh, and, of course, the, it is to the Romans that he's writing this letter uh, where there's Jew and Gentiles and apparently in these house churches. 
We don't know exactly what the situation, but it seems like the Gentiles are kind of taking over in uh, what was predominantly prior to Claudius's, you know, expelling the Jews from Rome. Mm-hmm. And so there, there may be some tension there, and Paul is saying, you know, this is not a minor thing. Jew getting along with Gentile is the marker of universal salvation. Right. So what you do, you know, how you get along and, and the unity that you can achieve, and of course he is writing to this chief city, this chief church, but I think he really says this even in a little tiny letter like Philemon, uh, but that's the whole point of Christianity, that this thing has bearing upon who you are uh, and who you associate with, who you eat with, how you regard other people. And so it's a, a real-world lived salvation uh, in which you uh, have a completely, there, there is no exclusion any longer. Yeah. Um, the thing about uh, when, when you mentioned First Corinthians, the, the first chapter has always moved me um, that what Paul seems to be saying in that first chapter is that um, it really is the cross of Christ that is the, that is the only real power for changing, for making things better here. Not that it was done for us so that we don't have to, but that it was done and we carry it and that it is in the in what the Greeks consider foolish and what the Jews consider a stumbling block, the idea that we would bear a cross, that is what really has the power to change the world. That we would love each other, support each other, care for one another. If we run to, to Philippians, consider one another more important than ourselves. That is, it's a really, um, it's a cross-bearing, um, another author that I read some time ago um, called it the cruciform gospel. Paul's writing was cruciform, that we bear the cross of Christ. And I think that comes right out of Romans chapter 8, uh, uh, yeah. 7 and 8 as well. You know, we will share in his glory if we are willing to share in his suffering. There is, there is salvation. And if and again, we've got a misreading in Romans five. Uh, Augustine reads Romans five as saying that that sin spread to the world, and then death is a result of sin uh, for everybody. That's precisely what Paul is not saying. Yeah. Certainly, with Adam, that sin resulted in death, but then death spread to everyone, and sin arises in conjunction with death. So that's what Paul is spelling out. What is the human predicament? What is the problem? And he goes on and describes that. You know, he, he, Paul reverse, often reverses the, the way he presents, okay, here's the solution, and here's what this is the solution to. Mm-hmm. If you jump ahead to, you know, he's already said, okay, we enter into baptism, that baptism is a dying with Christ. Oh, maybe that has something to do with the predicament that we're in. Maybe that has something to do with sin, and that's what he's saying in Romans 7, is that sin is an orientation. In other words, our problem is not the law, but our problem is that the orient, you know, this is, this is his argument throughout, but the, the law, he says, is just, holy, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. What the problem is is the human orientation to the law. And he says that, you know, and he goes back in the I in Romans 7 is, uh I think that it's referencing several things. It's referencing Genesis, where the I, 
you know, when Adam falls, he repeats it. The first sentence Adam says, he uses I four times. I ran, I hid, I was naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, and Paul then is, many people think that he's reduplicating that. Not to say that Paul isn't including himself in that. And so he can say I uh, and be referencing both himself and Adam. That is, he's describing the human condition. But he's also referencing, you know, this is, unfortunately, I think N.T. Wright takes a a wrong turn here. I'm very appreciative of much of his reading. But he, he, I think, he's always concerned to find Exodus and Exodus. Well, uh, that may be there uh, in in portions of it. But uh, in Romans 7, this is not simply the Jewish problem. Mm-hmm. It certainly applies to the Jews in the same way. And so you can read, uh, you know, the, the Jews even look back to the prohibition of the, the tree in the garden as a kind of prolepsis of the law, of the Torah. And so their, their problem is not a different problem, and that's what Paul's arguing. That, but their problem is not the law. Their problem is the orientation to the law. They imagine that there is life and salvation in the law or in being Jewish. You know, when we say law, we don't mean what Luther meant, oh, doing good works, but we mean the ethnic markers. In other words, here's where the new perspective is very helpful. Mm-hmm. The markers of being Jewish, that Jewish identity. Uh, but that is not simply the Jewish problem. That is the human problem. That's the human predicament. And so I think you can read Romans 7. As a look into, you know, this gets a a little tricky because when you say it is the deep psychology, but it's not the deep psychology of someone that has access to this. Paul only understands this in a Christian, from a Christian frame, but he's referencing is what he was like, I think, or what people are like, or what Jews are like, or what Adam was experiencing. It, You know, when you get into the details, of Romans 7, it just becomes irresistible to see that what Paul is doing here is inclusive of both Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus. In other words, it's not exclusively one or the other. Um, I wonder if it's if, if part of the um, problem there is that we have a tendency to stop at Genesis chapter 3 and say, well, Genesis chapter 3 is about all of us, and Genesis chapter 4 through Matthew is just about Israel. And then Matthew through Revelation is about all of us again. When, in fact, um, a proper understanding of the, the role of Israel was that that was always supposed to be about everybody. That uh, the kingdom of Israel was supposed to be not God's favorite people, but God's chosen people who were supposed to draw the rest of the nations to him because they were so different than the rest of the nations. But just like we do um, as Christians, where we have a tendency to want to look out at the shiny things out there and the, the, what the other nations nations have, kingdoms, I don't want to slip into two kingdoms language, obviously, but we want to look out there and say, well, that looks really shiny. That violence looks really um, productive. Uh, that money looks really powerful. Those structures look really um, like they can make us, uh, they can make things work. 
that kind of brings me to um, one thing I really would like to hear you kind of hit at here. There's a piece that you have used a lot um, in, in our conversations dealing with injustices that are done um, sometimes within these religious structures, people uh, behaving less than amicably with one another. Even, I, I think, some of what we're seeing um, from in, in the sort of Christian right politically right now, where folks are willing to, in order to accomplish what they take to be a good thing, are willing to stoop to all sorts of horrible wrongs. Um, however you may feel about the abortion issue, if, you're, if your take is to end the abortion is good, how you can justify being okay with caging children on the southern border um, to do evil in order to accomplish what you take to be good. I'd, I'd like to hear um, how your study of Romans has or affected that, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the logic. And Paul hits this, I think it's you know, four different times. Shall we sin that grace may abound? You know, people are quickly dismissive of that. But actually, that's a logic that we, in some way, have to do evil for the good, to accomplish the good. In fact, that's an irresistible logic. That is the logic that he just keeps, you know, shall we, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound? Is the law sin? Well, in fact, in a system, and this, is, this gets into the heart, this is both out there, this is the big justification for war. You know, we gotta, we, of course, we've got to kill the bad people. And we're never the bad people, so we're gonna we're gonna do this evil thing in order to get a greater good. You know, this is the way you establish peace. This is yeah, we've got to be violent in order to get peace. So it works in an outward sense, but it also works in an inward sense. He says the same thing in Romans seven when he's talking about the human interior, and of course, it's the deception. Is the law sin? Well, there is a certain perspective in which, you know, if you imagine there is life in the law, there are two ways of getting at that. You can be a law keeper, but the original idea was, well, actually the law is a screen that is protecting us. This is what Satan says, or the serpent says, that, oh, that actually uh, that God, you won't die, that you'll achieve a, a knowledge of good and evil. And so if the law is sin, you sin in order to establish the law. That's the logic. Mm -hmm. That is that you do evil to, to, to get the greater good. And once you see this, just this is just every conversation you have with anybody, you know, whether it's about, oh, well, do I participate in violence? Do I do violence to others? You know, oh, it's just a necessity that I protect my, you know, dot, dot, dot. Right. But it's, it's a necessity also in human psycho psychology, and that's what Paul's tracing, that there is an antagonism between the mind, the law of the mind, what Paul calls the law of the mind, and the law of the body. Neither one of those are necessarily, you know, those aren't correct. Those are just two things in which he's pitted against himself, mm. in which we literally sacrifice ourselves masochistically. Mm -hmm. In other words, sadism arises Violence arises because of a, a, a willingness uh, that it, he's describing in which, you know, the law is displacing God. 
And where the law displaces God, then life, justice, everything is going to be found. And this is the failure, certainly what Judaism has demonstrated for us, but it is the universal failure. Now, what law might mean, it's going to mean different things in different systems. You know, in the United States, well, we have to establish the rule of law, and we're the world's policemen. And so, you know, we're going to have to kill a few Vietnamese or Iraqis. or And so we'll, we'll be the... Iranians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's endless. It's endless. And by the way, you know, the, the statistically, I think we're the most violent country in the history of the world. Yeah, I think uh, so, too. That we've been at war continuously, precisely, I think, because we've bought into this logic. But it is just an irresistible thing that it, it functions. It can be said a little bit differently, but it's always the same thing that the other side of the coin in if the law is sin is that I'll establish law through sin. I'll, if the I do evil, that goodness may abound. I've just had, personally, I've had people explain why they were doing evil to me or that's the justification that you'll hear from politicians or others. Uh, and, one of the, the, I think, the things that gets in the way is our understanding of what's evil. Evil is always way further than what I'm doing. You know, when we talk about evil, I think we should probably, or sin, we should probably be using that term violence or aggression. Um, and ever since you started using that language with me, I started to realize I'm hearing it all the time. I hear people say it all, even on the radio today. I'm listening to somebody who is a, a, a right-wing commentator who's saying, yeah, I don't actually agree with a lot of things that this administration is doing. Um, I actually think that there's some offenses here that I, I really cannot get on board with. But I do appreciate the way... Uh, he's uh, going after the Chinese because you have to bloody the nose of your bully. Yeah. And um, as if a this this country has not been an economic bully, and uh, b as if that's that central assumption is well you 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 have to fight back you have to punch back if you're being punched well the the gospel's entire premise is no there you don't have to respond to aggression with aggression, to violence with violence, that that is the problem. And to see and to try to read that into Paul, um, I think is, I think Paul probably would not be pleased with it. Oh, he wouldn't recognize people's reading of... of yeah, I don't think he would. This has been really great. I'm really, uh, I'm, I really think that this course is going to be phenomenal. Is there anything else you want to kind of tag on to the end? Yeah. Well, we'll we'll put up a, a link link to the for the Plowshares Bible Institute, and if you'd like to take the course, it's an eight week course. We are covering all sixteen chapters, and we're being very ambitious, and we're going to hit the the what's happening. The that right now is an exciting time in Roman studies, not just with the new perspective. I mean, I think the new perspective is is the old perspective, but I think with the recent work, uh, interestingly, the recent work that Douglas Campbell is doing, and I've found uh, common ground. I, I, I haven't uh, looked at all that he's doing or agree with him completely, 
but there is the recognition that we've misread uh, Romans. And so I hope that I think this will be a very exciting uh, entry uh, into uh, a perspective of Romans that can be very practical. Awesome. So that's going to be coming out very soon. And we're already, we're already got registration open. For registration is open. Just sign up. Uh, the course is $150. If somebody doesn't have $150, they need help. Uh, we've got various ways that we can help you, but uh, uh, hopefully that uh, yeah we'll, I, we've already got uh, we've already got the class half full. Wonderful, wonderful. It sounds wonderful. I can't wait. Um, it, I think it's uh, it's a great addition to what we're doing at PBI. So excellent. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Jason. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.